Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1661, and continuing on then to 1662, chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, reading this chapter in its entirety, starting on 1661 and continuing on to 1662. Here now, the very word of God. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Asher. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Levi. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Benjamin. 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing." and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, thou knowest. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we now have the second of three sermons on Revelation chapter 7, the indestructible church. And in this passage, in this chapter, we see that the indestructible church worships God for his salvation. The indestructible church worships God for his salvation. Now, my friends, is there anything that is indestructible? You know, the world offers its own examples. Now, some of us, at least, one or two of us anyway, here in this crowd, to, this, to remember John Cameron Swayze. He was a spokesman for Timex, for the watch company. You can look this up on YouTube later. And he would put these, this is like, you know, late 50s, early 60s, that time period. He would put a Timex watch through all kinds of tests you know, on the propeller of like an outboard motor for a, for a boat or, uh, you know, put it in a, a machine that shakes things and so forth. And of course, what is the tagline by John Cameron Swayze? It was Timex. It keeps a licking. It, it takes a licking and keeps on ticking. There you go. Some of us are old enough to remember that. Or what about the United States of America? One nation under God, indivisible, school children and politicians proudly pledge. But of course, in neither case is that true, right? Wrist watches eventually do wear out. And nations come and nations go. And we may be seeing a swift end to our own nation. We don't know that, but it's possible. God is not mocked. Nations come and nations go. It is not indivisible. Empires rise and then crumble. But my friends, there is something that will last through all ages. There is something that truly is indivisible. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're in section, in this section here, in Revelation, of the seven seals, the sealed scroll. It's sealed, and no one can open it except for one, and that is the Lion of Judah, who, as John turns to see him, is also the Lamb who was slain. It is the Lamb who is the one who can open the seals, not only revealing God's plan, at least in measure here, but putting into effect God's plan because Jesus is the mediatorial king. 
This chapter in Revelation, as we noticed last week, is like an interlude. So an interlude is like a, an in-between sort of thing. So if you have a uh, maybe um, a play and there are different scenes in that play, well, you need perhaps some time to, to set up the next scene. And so what does the orchestra do? It will play a little musical interlude. And in a sense, that's what we have here in Revelation chapter 7. It's like an interlude. It, catch, it allows us to catch our breath from all the drama that we've already seen in the preceding chapters and to consider the question of whether there is any hope in the midst of a topsy-turvy, crazy world that is boiling with trouble and turmoil, disturbed by instances of cruelty and the slaughter of innocents, including young children. In the midst, then, in the midst of Christ's divine providences, as seen in the four horsemen that we looked at, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as portrayed in the anguished cry, the gut-wrenching cry of the martyrs from the altar, How long, O Lord? And in the midst of Christ's saints, on all of those of the world, from kings to slaves who were arrayed against God's people, in the midst of all of that turmoil, the scenes of all that topsy-turvy, that drama, that warfare, that persecution, that cruelty, in the midst of all of that, there is a certainty that the people of God will be preserved. And that's what Revelation 7 is all about. Last week, we looked at the ceiling of the 144,000. The ceiling of the 144,000. These, And, of course, we have here, in this particular scene, the four angels that are holding back the four winds, the four winds, the wind that would blow on the earth and on the sea and on the trees, but yet the, the angels, sort of the four corners of the earth, the angels are holding back those destructive winds just for a moment so that the servants of God can have his seal placed on their foreheads. And so this other angel then has the seal of the living God by which to stand. Now, this is, this is not literal, of course. This is a, this is a vision. Don't, do not understand this as being literal, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Okay? It is really the case that God does seal us. And so this angel then has the stamp, as it were, of God placed upon us. As we noticed last week, a seal does three basic things. It protects, it marks, and it certifies. It protects, it marks, and it certifies. And uh, we even related this to the Trinity in terms of the Father is the one who protects his people. The, the fact that the Son of God is the one who purchases his people and therefore marks us out as those, in terms of ownership, as those who belong to him. We have the brand, his brand, as it were, upon us. And it's the Holy Spirit, then, who is the guarantee, the down payment, who certifies that we indeed are the children of God. 
And of course, we also looked at that whole issue of the 144,000. We know the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is a cult, and uh, which denies the Trinity and denies the deity of Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses also believe there are only 144,000 to go to heaven. Well, again, that's another instance of why their, their doctrine is, is in such error. Now, the 144,000 is symbolic. It's symbolic. It's a symbol. It's a picture, if you will. It's a picture of the elect, those who have been chosen by God from before time began to be his children. It's a picture of the elect. It's a certain definite number that can't be added to or taken away from. But it is also a symbol, then, of God's perfect work. Ten times ten times ten. Ten cubed is a thousand. A number of perfection. Times twelve times twelve. The twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve apostles of the New Testament. And so it is symbolic of the elect and symbolic of God's perfect work. And now we come to verses 9 through 12 today in terms of the worship before the throne because, as we know, what this chapter is about is the indestructible church worships God for his salvation. This is what this now is leading up to, verses 9 through 12. Notice with me, in verse 9, the multitude before the throne. The multitude, the crowds, if you will. The thousands, the millions of people before the throne. After these things, John says, after these things, I looked and behold. What did he see? A great multitude which no one could count. Now, I'm sure many of us have been to a stadium like Georgia Dome or Mercedes-Benz Stadium or even a high school stadium or maybe, maybe Bobby Dodd Stadium. So you've got all those thousands of people there. Did you ever try to count them all? It's impossible, isn't it? Well, that's the picture that we have here, but even on, grand, on a grander scale. A great multitude which no one could count. And by the way, this is very similar to God's promise to Abraham. God's promise in terms of the covenant to Abraham, in which he promised Abraham that your descendants will be like the stars. Now, children, you ever tried to count the stars? That's impossible, isn't it, to count the stars? You can't do it. And yet, that's the picture that we have here. Matter of fact, as we sang from Psalm 147 this afternoon, God does count the number of the stars. He names them one by one. But it's impossible for us to count the stars. And the more, the more powerful telescopes that we have, the more we look at the heavens, the more we know that it's impossible to count them. Or like the sand on the seashore. You ever try to count the grains of sand? If you ever try to do that, it's not going to work, I promise you. So it's a great multitude which no one could count. But the Lord, the Lord certainly knows each one. Even though no human can count the number, the Lord knows everyone by name. And by the way, this indicates that there are not few who will be saved. That it is a great number 
who will be saved. That's the picture that you have here. Christ is the Savior of the world, and he will bring many sons and daughters to glory. And as he, do, as he does so, did you notice something else here? Not only was this a great multitude which no one could number, but where does it come from? It comes from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues will be included. Not I think of the, I know it's a different, they named the tribe differently now, but what used to be called the Aka Indians, A-U-C-A, the Aka Indians. You know why they came to the world's attention in 1956? As they slaughtered, they killed, they murdered five missionaries who had flown onto a sandbar in a river in Ecuador to try to bring the gospel to them. These were headhunters, basically. Okay? And uh, Jim Elliott was one of the famous people whose widow then was Elizabeth Elliot, who became a well-known, a well-known uh, Christian author. She's now passed away. But the Aka Indians, well, guess what? Because of that sacrifice by those, those five martyrs, we talk about the martyrs from the throne, right? Because of the, the sacrifice of those five martyrs, many Aka Indians have now come to faith. Isn't that amazing? We think of the, the young man who tried to go to a forbidden island that technically belongs to India, but no one's allowed to approach because, again, they are savage headhunters, and he was killed just in the last few years trying to bring the gospel to them. But someday, by God's grace, we will see the gospel go to them too. And so there is a universality to this, is there not? And here then, we have this great multitude from all nations of the earth standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are standing, as it were, in the presence of God in heaven. And notice that it is before the Father and the Son that they are standing. And specifically then, what we see here is, first of all, the rule of the sovereign God, as seen throughout this big section, the rule of the sovereign God, the fact that it is God who is in charge, who is directing these events. There is nothing that takes him by surprise. He is directing all events for his own glory and the salvation of his elect. But also, we see the lamb. We see the lamb, slain, yet standing. The lamb who has the ability to break the seals. These then, from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every tongue, what are they wearing? They are wearing white robes. And a robe would symbolize perhaps festivity, Happiness, joy, white, of course, white, justification, our right standing before God, our righteousness that has been provided for us by Christ, holiness, victory. But they also, what do they have in their hands? They have palm branches, 
as conquerors. As conquerors, but also pointing to salvation. Remember what is sometimes referred to as Palm Sunday, John chapter 12. Remember that? Remember when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and what did the people do? They had out their palm branches and they cried out, Hosanna, save now. But it's also an expression of praise. Save now, pointing to salvation. It also reminds us of the Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus chapter 23, where the children of Israel, who were then in the promised land, by dwelling in tents during the Feast of Tabernacles, a tabernacle is a tent, would recall their having trekked, their having journeyed in the wilderness, and God having brought them through that then. Well, these as we see here then, this description, we also see the worship that they offer. And they cried out with a loud voice. Now, many commentators believe that this is a song which is being portrayed here. But again, remember, this is a, this, we don't interpret this literally. In any case, we interpret this symbolically as a picture. In any case, there is great enthusiasm in this worship. As they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the... Or literally, the salvation. The salvation. That is to say, salvation in its completeness, in its totality. Including, of course, therefore, the cosmos, Romans chapter 8. So that the creation right now is under the heavy hand of the, the affection. Someday... That will be removed in the new heavens and the new earth. The state, then, of universal perfection. But this salvation, we need to remember, is totally of grace. It is totally of grace. It is totally because of what God has done and is doing. It's because of God's divine decree. He is the one who is sitting on the throne. And it's because of Christ's blood and atoning sacrifice. And so we see then the worship before the throne by means of the multitude, but we also see the angels. The angels. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. Those four living creatures were the cherubim, like angels, the 24 elders representing the church, the 12 tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles of the New Testament. And what did these angels do? These powerful creatures, far more powerful than you or I, and totally holy, without sin, what did they do? They fell on their faces. They fell on their faces. And my friends, if these perfect spiritual beings, these angels, fall on their faces before the throne, so should we. They fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God. The, the word there for worship is like bowing the knee, proskuneo, bowing the knee. And also probably, listen to this, probably derives from the notion of kissing 
or maybe like a, a dog licking its master's hand as a sign of affection. What is the content of their worship? Will they begin it? They begin their worship by saying amen. Now usually we put amen at the end of the prayer. Here they put it at the beginning. Amen means so let it be. So let it be. But this then is a response, as it were, to the worship that is offered by the multitude. So the multitude, the people, the elect from every nation are, uh, would be offering this worship and in response to that, the angels are giving their amen to that, and then they're going on, and they're giving this sevenfold praise, this sevenfold, seven aspects of praise. Now notice here several things. Number one, the number seven, and we know that that is a number of perfection, the number seven. Notice something also, and this is not evident in our translations here, our, our English translations, but the definite article is there with each of these. So it's not, it's not simply blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and so forth, but it is literally the blessing and the glory and the wisdom. The definite article is there with each item. Therefore, what we see here is that in the fullest, deepest sense, these excellent characteristics, these excellent things, belong to God and to him alone. Let me also just briefly say that if you look back to chapter 5, you may recall this, back to chapter 5 and verse 12, there's a similar list as these 10,000 times, 10,000s and thousands of thousands of angels say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's not the same order. It's, it's, it's a different order, is it not? And uh, furthermore, <clears throat> um, uh, furthermore, there is uh, the uh, there's one that is um, it, riches is found in uh, chapter five of verse twelve, but it has been replaced here uh, in terms of thanksgiving. Now it's hard to see that there is much significance to the different order. Other than this, this is an important point. It shows that these various aspects, these seven things that are mentioned here in Revelation 7, are all part of a whole. They are all part of a whole, and it doesn't much matter much in which order they come. It may very well be related to the idea of God's infinite nature and the fact that he doesn't have any parts you can't divide him up. You know, you can take our bodies, you can divide us up. You can say, well, there's a, there's a, a hand, there's an arm, there's a leg, uh, there's a liver, there's a heart, if you go inside and so forth. So we can divide ourselves, but when it comes to God, it's all together. It's because God is, is, um, is one. God is one. And it may very well be that this is one of the things that is being taught here. But another thing to note is that our praise is to be intelligent, 
and understandable. We made that observation back in Revelation chapter 5. And we say it here again, that our praise to God is to be intelligent. It is not a mindlessly mouthed mantra. No, our praise is to be intelligent. We're supposed to use our minds. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this is not some sort of, um, even though there's an excitement here in terms of the worship, it's not supposed to be pure emotion. It is to be intelligent praise. And then we look at these items themselves. And here I I borrow from uh, the commentator uh, William Hendrickson in terms of some of his observations. Notice the blessing. Amen. The blessing. Or we could say the praise. As Hendrickson says, not merely the invocation of blessing, you know, God bless us or may God be blessed, but the actual possession of the fullness of the divine attributes upon which our salvation is founded. The blessing and the fullness of everything that God gives to us. The glory. The glory. This means magnificent splendor, brightness, radiance, as in Isaiah 6, where the angels before the throne cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of thy glory. Or as we read in Luke chapter 2, in terms of the angelic beings out on the hillside, telling those shepherds about the birth of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the whole sky was lit up with those angels in terms of their brightness and their glory. If you've ever been on... Amtrak, coming out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, you go, you come out of the tunnel as you, after you've been in Denver, you come out of a tunnel about half hour or so out of Denver. And if the sun is shining, as you come to the other side of the tunnel, all of a sudden you see these mountains and they're covered with snow. And it is glorious. And that's the kind of picture that you have here, the glory. As Hendrickson says, that glory which results when the splendor of God's characteristics, his sovereignty, his righteousness, his love, his mercy, when that brightness is recognized, the blessing, the glory, the wisdom, God's wisdom revealed in the plan of salvation and in the execution of that plan, including, including things that seemingly are impossible. God has done in terms of his salvation. God is the one that has, in Christ, broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile so that we alike are part of the one body. God has reconciled people from all races, from all backgrounds, from all ethnic groups, from all tongues, from all tribes. God has reconciled us together, and perhaps even more amazingly, God has reconciled us to himself. 
And so the blessing, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the thanksgiving, thanksgiving results whenever this wisdom of God in our salvation is recognized. My friends, we should give thanks to God for all he has done. The honor, and the honor here sort of has the, the idea of weight, of weight, gravitas, we might say, of weight, of preciousness, of preciousness. And there's also a sense here of nobility, or we might even say command presence. You know, Lord Nelson of the Battle of Trafalgar, October 1805, said to his men just before that battle, England expects that every man will do his duty. And even though Lord Nelson died in that battle, his fleet defeated the enemy. England expects, you can just see him, standing on, the, on that sailing vessel, the HMS Victory. You can just see him, can you not? As he says, England expects that every man will do his duty. A charismatic personality that leads men to do heroic deeds. A command presence. But my friends, with regard to God, it is a recognition of who he is. It's a recognition of who he is and the weight, the honor that is given to him. The power, two more, the power. This word is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. You know, when they were building the Transcontinental Railroad, before they had dynamite, they used nitroglycerin, which is very, very ticklish. Now, children, if we had, if we had a beaker, a glass of nitroglycerin, if I had it in my hand right now and I dropped it, probably none of us in this room would survive. It's very explosive and very unstable, Okay. But that nitroglycerin was put into a clay-like substance, and that's where you get dynamite from. So you have to put a, uh, put a charge, an electric charge through it, and that's what causes it to explode. But when it does explode, even in terms of dynamite, it's very powerful, much more powerful than, let's say, gunpowder. And so this is the power of God that is, that is at work. It's the power of God that is at work, and specifically, it's the power of God that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead. It was that resurrection power that broke the chains of death. The resurrection power found in Jesus' rising from the dead. Power, as Paul says, that is at work in you. The power. And so these angels then are giving praise to God for the power. And finally, the might or the strength. This is the inherent power or force. So if you look at a weightlifter, look at someone who's got these muscles, much better than mine. You look at someone with, or a football player, or someone like that with powerful muscles, that person has strength. That person has might, and so it is with God. It's not simply that he uses his power, but that he has strength. He is all-powerful. 
Now, by way of application today, I have three points of application. The first is this. Are you desirous of being exuberant, of being enthusiastic in your worship and praise? Are you desirous of being enthusiastic in your worship and praise? It has been said that worship is the highest and best activity of man. So let me ask you very clearly here, what is your attitude with respect to worship? Is it that of, well, I can take it or leave it. I can take it or leave it. If that is the case with you, if you are lackadaisical in terms of whether you show up for worship or not, there's a problem because it shows that you don't really understand what is involved in salvation and the fact that God is indeed worthy to be praised. Worship is the highest activity of man, far more important than anything else we do. It is coming into the special presence of God. It is coming into the presence of God with the angels themselves being here. They're here. We are in their presence. We're in the presence of the living Christ. We have come before his throne on the basis of his death and resurrection. If that doesn't float your boat, so to speak, nothing will. So are you desirous of being exuberant in your whip and praise? Number two. How can you be exuberant in your worship and your Number one, that coming into God's presence is totally by grace. Acknowledge that coming into God's presence is totally by grace. You have to recognize your lack of righteousness and purity. And worship, therefore, must be an expression of gratitude, of thankfulness, of thanksgiving. So acknowledge that your coming into God's presence, not because of anything good you've done, not because you've earned brownie points with God or you're earning brownie points with God. It is totally by his grace. Number two, perform those acts of worship which God desires. In other words, follow his rules. We uh, refer to this in the Reformed faith as what's called the regulative principle of worship. Our worship is strictly regulated by the word of God. That's why... We don't do a lot of song and dance acts here. That's the world's way of doing things that's come into the church. That's entertainment. Rather, perform those things which God desires because it is his show. We are in his presence. Number three, act not, be knowledgeable rather than ignorant with regard to God and his attributes or characteristics. Be knowledgeable. Come to understand more of who God is, and the more you understand who God is, this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the more you are knowledgeable rather than ignorant with regard to God and who he is, the more excited you're going to be about worship. And number three, remember 
that worship radically God-centered and Christ-focused. It is God-centered and Christ-focused. Throughout all eternity, we shall be praising God. Throughout all eternity, we will join with the angels in praising God for his wisdom and power and strength and honor and might and glory throughout all eternity. We will be praising God for his bringing to himself an uncountable multitude of people. We will be praising God throughout all eternity for his grace in saving a rebellious people. And it is worship then that not only is God-centered, but that is directed to and offered by means of Jesus Christ. Because remember, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And now, our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living Christ, the Spirit who was poured out on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit who enlightens our minds and changes our hearts, we pray, O oh God, that that same Holy Spirit would work in our hearts now to give us gratitude and thanksgiving and enthusiasm in our worship, knowing, O oh God, that it is all by thy grace and all by the sacrifice of thy Son. Be pleased, O oh God, to work in our midst this day. Accomplish thy purposes here in this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.